1992, the Cook family welcomed a special blessing into our world. My sister Jenna was born. She was our little princess. And a couple of years later, Warner Brothers re-released the old Shirley Temple movie, A Little Princess. And so you can only imagine how growing up, we spent all sorts of time watching A Little Princess. If you're not familiar with the film, it's set in uh, World War I, and there's a wealthy businessman who takes his little daughter, Sarah, to a, a boarding school in New York City before he's deployed as a soldier uh, over to Europe. And he goes, and he, he gets there, and the, the headmistress of the school, her name is Miss Minchin, and she's this, this witch of a woman. She's just an absolute jerk. Um, but but the, the, the dad buys Sarah the, the nicest uh, apartment suite that the whole school has, and he puts her on the, the most luxurious meal plan they have, and there's no pleasure that's spared for his little princess. And as the story uh, unfolds, there's kind of this tension building of, of nasty mismention and beloved Sarah, and how is the, the, the beloved daughter with the nasty old woman, how's this all going to play out? And as you get to the end, the, the dad comes back and he's had these injuries that he's incurred while in battle and he has severe amnesia and he can't remember who his daughter is. And Miss Minchin realizes, this is my chance. I've been hating this girl for years now. And so she kicks her out of the apartment and makes her live in the attic. And she takes away the meal plan and makes her eat the scraps and go searching in the trash can for food. And sort of at the, the climax of the movie, she says, man, I, I can really get what I want here. She calls the police and says, I've got a criminal living here, and she shouldn't be here. I need you to come take her off to prison. And it's this, this dark, overcast, rain pouring down, as it always is in that part of the movie, right? And the police show up, and Miss Minchin is gloating as, as Sarah is carried off. And the dad walks out of an apartment right around the way, and he remembers, and he looks at her, and he says, Sarah! And she comes sprinting back, and tears pouring down her face, and he scoops her up, and he hugs her, and loves her, and she's been redeemed. And Miss Minchin is kicked to the curb, and everyone is so glad. It's a, it's a powerful moment. What's that tell us? his amnesia directly and drastically impacted her life. And what we see in Galatians 2 is that if we have gospel amnesia, we forget the gospel, it will drastically and directly impact our lives. We saw that last week in Peter's life. Peter forgot the gospel. It drastically, directly impacted his life. He committed the sin of partiality. He acted hypocritically. And Paul will go on to this week to explain, you cannot, you must not forget the gospel. Because we can know the gospel in our mind, but in our daily life live as gospel amnesiacs. And Paul says, don't do that. You can't do that. So the, the sermon is titled, Gospel Amnesia which I hope that you don't have, and if you do, I hope this passage will break you out of it. All right, so, so three points to our outline this morning is Paul will say, remember the gospel, and then he will say to clarify the gospel, and then thirdly, he will say to live in the gospel. Remember it, clarify it, live in it. So remember the gospel. We go back, verses 15 and 16. Let's, let's look back at your copy of God's word. Verse 15 
we read kind of an interesting introduction, but we'll explain what it means. Paul writes, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he's writing to a Two Jews that say we're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. It can sound fairly judgy when you read that. Like, Paul, are you really saying you're that much better than everybody else? No, that's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is compared to some, those sinners, and everybody thinks of somebody else as worse than them, saying compared to those people, you might look all right. But he's setting up the audience for what's gonna come next, say even though you might look all right, you're actually not all right. And verse 16 sort of clarifies this. Verse 16 has got a ton packed into it. So as we read through verse 16 here, I want you to look for one word and one phrase. And if you mark up your Bible, which I'd encourage you to do, highlight, underline, circle, whatever you do, the word is justified. The phrase is works of the law. You'll see this repeated over and over. The word justified, the phrase works of the law, super important. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, over and over, justified three times, works of the law three times. This is critical for understanding how do we remember the gospel. So you might be saying, what does it mean to be justified? What, what is that? It's kind of a, a theological term. It means to be declared righteous. In the simplest of terms, it means you're okay with God. You're good with God. In a more technical sense, there's two parts to it. Of one, saying you've done wrong things. We all have done wrong things, thought wrong thoughts, said wrong things, had wrong motives. The, the, de- the guilt for your wrongdoing is no longer on your account. That's the first part. The second part is, well, go back to the first part. The, the wrongdoing was put onto Christ. He took your guilt. The second part is you are then given Christ's righteousness. So it's not just that I was in debt and now I'm at a $0 balance in my spiritual bank account. It's now that I have the infinite riches of Christ's perfect life given to me. He gets all the bad, I get all of his good. That's why the old hymn writer in Rock of Ages would say, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Right? That's what they're talking about. Maybe another way of thinking about this was, uh, or is, from my kinesiology class in college. I was, uh, kinesiology, how the body works, how it moves, you're getting ready for all these things. The final exam has all of these questions where you have to list out the Latin name for the muscles in the body. And sadly, for me at least, it wasn't multiple choice or matching or anything like that where you could just hack your way through it. You actually had to write them out. And so I also sadly procrastinated for my test. And I thought, hey, if I stay up till three in the morning studying, catch a quick two-hour power nap, get up at five, study a little bit more, get to the 8 a.m. test, I'll be all right. Hadn't really looked at all this Latin stuff yet. I figured, I mean, you can kind of guess at like, you know, gluteus maximus, that gets you a couple or something like that. Um, and and so, so we get into it, and what happens, I fall asleep at three in the morning, and I wake up at 8.45 for an exam that started at eight, and I haven't looked at half the muscles. So I sprint to class, you know, haven't taken a shower, haven't, gotten out of my sweat pants, sweatshirt, whatever, all this, like, this is not a good situation. I go in, and there's no way you can guess at this stuff. Like, it's Latin names of muscles. You either know it or you don't. 
right? So, so I hand in the test like 30% blank. That's our life. We're trying to measure up to God's standard, and no matter how good we are, there's a huge percentage that's blank where we just don't measure up. And so what would happen is like in the test, I have got this blank when my buddy was super disciplined and, and he studied well, knew it all, and right when it went to turn the test in, we swapped. He erased my name on the half-empty test, wrote his own name, turned it in and said, hey, I'll take the failing grade that you deserve, Justin. And I'll let you cross out my name on the perfectly filled out, 100% ACE exam, and I'll give you that, and you can have all the rewards that come from your 100% final. That's what justification is. Christ takes all your bad, and you get all his good. Another way of saying this is to say, God is holy, and I am not. I failed the test. But Jesus saves, and therefore Christ is my life. God is holy, I am not. Jesus saves, Christ is my life. That's good news. That's remembering the gospel. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us try to think of our own righteousness that we may not use the phrase works of the law, like verse 16 of Galatians 2 says, but we try to see the ways that we have measured up. And we all have our own different works of the law. And so from a conservative standpoint, you might find your own measuring up, your own righteousness, your own works of the law in your own good morals or your hard work, or how you give money, or how you provide for your family. Say, I've done those things. I've measured up. I've got some righteousness to my account. And from a more more progressive, secular standpoint, you might say, hey, I've measured up too. I've kept the rules. I've been non-judgmental. I've been inclusive. I've fought against oppression. You see, everybody sets up a standard for themselves and say, hey, I've kept the rules that I've set up, and therefore I think I'm starting to measure up. And Paul would say, no, 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 what you need to understand is that, first off, your standard is not God's standard, so your standard is flawed to start out with, but not even you measure up to your own standard. That's why you have politicians all the time that are terrified that a secret tape would be released of what they said in some closed-door conversation. Because they say one thing publicly, but they know they don't even measure up to their own standard. And it's just a good thing that most of us don't get put on that platform because the same thing would happen to each of us. We know deep down we don't measure up. We know that God is holy and we are not. And we need Jesus to save so that Christ will be our life. One way of saying this then is to recognize that I can't be good enough for God to save me, but I can't be bad enough that he wouldn't save me. And this this message of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is not something that's, you know, exclusively found here in Galatians 2. This is the message of the entire Bible. Let's look at just a couple of passages here. Philippians 3, 9, we read, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The exact same thing. Or Romans 5.1. We read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we've been justified, we have peace with God. We're okay with God. We're good with God. But it's not because of us. But it's not just a New Testament message. It's the message of the whole Bible. Right? Paul in Galatians 2 actually uses specific language that pulls in the idea of Psalm 143. This is so interesting. Look at verse two of Psalm 143 on the screen. It reads, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. 
Oh, go back to verse two on the slide there. Do you hear that? No one living is righteous before you. God is holy, I am not. Okay, now to go to the end of Psalm 143, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. God is holy, I am not, but Jesus saves. That's the good news. That's remember the gospel. And failing to remember this message brings the most devastating consequences that could ever be imagined. Look back in your copy of God's word, back uh, to the prior chapter, Galatians 1. Look at verse 8 and listen to the, the language that Paul uses. Say, if you forget the gospel, here's what it is. Galatians 1.8, he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, cut off from God, condemned to eternity in hell. Verse nine, we continue. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is why in the documents that I've put out, we've talked about being biblically grounded and gospel-centered. You have to be centered on the gospel because there are millions, perhaps billions of people in the world using the Bible but not being centered on the gospel of justification by faith alone. And you can say true things from the Bible without being centered on the gospel. You could say true things about Christian virtues or about the created order and nature. You could say true things about gender roles, but you could say all of those without preaching the gospel. And Paul says in Galatians 1, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that because a message from the Bible that's not centered on the gospel brings no hope to a lost and dying world. And a message from the Bible that's not centered on the gospel brings no power to change for Christians who are seeking to follow Jesus. So we must be biblically grounded and gospel-centered. In verse 16 of Galatians 2, we said justified, not by works of the law. It's repeated over and over and over again. Why the repetition? It wasn't one time good enough, Paul. Why does he go over and over and over? It's because he knows the human heart. He knows that we're prone to forget these things. He knows that we want deep down to take credit for these things. And it's pretty easy to see not only in their context were these things being forgotten, but all through history these things have been forgotten, that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, not by works of the law. So just a couple of examples here. You could find in official Roman Catholic teaching a complete denial of this. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. It's been forgotten. We live in an area where many churches in this area teach that you must be baptized in order to be justified. Works of the law. This is just from one church in Brownsburg. I hopped on their website this week. It says, the acceptance of God's gift of salvation comes through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism by immersion. Jesus is forgotten all over the place in the history of religious landscape. We can't lose sight of it. That's why John Calvin would say that justification by faith alone is the principal article of the whole doctrine of salvation, it's the foundation of all religion. It's why Luther, catch this, Luther would say, if this article, justification by faith alone, stands, then the church stands. And if this article collapses, then the church collapses. 
But it's not just something that's forgotten historically throughout religious culture. This idea that we can't be justified by works of the law is largely forgotten in the secular American culture, right? We're culturally a DIY people. We want to do it ourselves, including our own justification. Check out this picture on the screen, right? We're, we're Americans, not Americans. Like, I can do this, right? What was, the, what was the, uh, the Home Depot slogan? You can do it. We can help. And many of us see our relationship with God like that. I can do it and he might be there to help if I need a little help on the side. That's forgetting what Paul said here. And lest we think that this forgetting is only something that happens in false teachers and only something that happens in the secular culture, it's important to remember that Paul here is writing to Christians. It reminds that the gospel is both the on-ramp to Christianity and the highway of Christianity. It's how you become a Christian and how you go as a Christian. It's both the diving board into the pool of Christianity and the gospel is the entire pool. You want to grow deeper as a Christian? You want to grow as a Christian? You need to go deeper into the gospel and see how it compels you to live a life for Christ. And what we're tempted to do is to always find our identity in something besides the gospel in a relationship, or in a job, or in various possessions, things on this earth instead of who Christ says that we are. Paul Tripp would helpfully say it this way. He says this, human beings are always assigning to themselves some kind of identity. There are only two places to look. Either you will be getting your identity vertically from who you are in Christ, or you will be shopping for it horizontally in the situations, experiences, and relationships of your daily life. One of two places you're going to find your deepest identity. And so that's why I led by saying you can know the gospel cognitively, but in your daily life forget it and live as a gospel amnesiac where your deepest identity is through the things you find on this earth. And Paul says you must not do that. For Peter, last week, that resulted in sins of commission. He committed sins. He did things he shouldn't have. But it can just as easily result in sins of omission. I fail to do things I ought to. I fail to take risks for the gospel because I'm concerned what others may think or a reputation I want to maintain or what it may cost me. It works out both ways. And so, so two just really helpful diagnostic questions and we think about remembering the gospel would be this. One, how are you finding your identity horizontally? Are you finding your deepest identity in virtues of compassion? I'm an empathetic person. I'm a hard worker. I'm a provider. Is that where you find your identity? Is it in relationships as a, as a good employee or as a good son or daughter a good husband or wife, mother or father? Is that where your deepest identity is found? Is it in the things you possess? I've worked hard for this financial security. I've worked hard for this good job. I've worked hard for a generally under control life. And that's my deepest identity. So, so ask yourself, this is a, it's a great discussion at lunch. Hey, where do we find our deepest identity? Where, where are we at horizontally? 
But then secondarily to say, now how this week am I going to define myself vertically based on who Christ says I am? What do I need to do to remember that? Doing a set of reminder on my phone, read Galatians 2.16 at 12.30 on my lunch break. You need to tape a three by five card to your steering wheel. You need to ask a friend to text you, remind you of this. Like, do you need to memorize part of this passage? What do you need to do this week to remind yourself of your identity in the gospel? Paul says it's critical that you don't forget it. That's the first point, remember the gospel. Secondly, he says it's important that we clarify the gospel. So verses 17 through 19 are little sort of hypothetical responses that Paul's expecting. Objections from his listeners, from his hearers, that he's saying, ah, you might think this, you might think that, so let me clarify what I'm saying and what I'm not. So let's just walk through those. Look back at your copy of the scriptures. Verse 17, we read, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. What's he saying? He says, okay, if in our endeavor we want to be justified, we know we need to be justified, so we try to be justified in Christ, but I am still sinning in my daily life, does that mean that Christ is, in a sense, empowering me to sin? Is he a servant of sin? Certainly not. Being justified in Christ is not what we call a license to sin. In fact, just a couple of chapters later, Paul would directly confront this. Galatians 5, he would write, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what Paul is contrasting here is two false understandings of the gospel. The first part, 15, 16, you won't be justified through works of the law. That's what we might call legalism. I think by keeping the rules, I can earn favor with God, basically. Now what he's starting to respond to is the other objection, the other side of the coin, the other error of what we call antinomianism. So big word, actually not that complicated, break it down, anti, the first part, no, nomianism, nomos law, anti-law, no law. There's nothing I have to do. I can do whatever I want. So you can, you can fall off the horse on one side of saying, keeping the rules earns me favor with God, and you could fall off the horse on the other side and say, well, I've been justified by faith alone. I can sleep with whoever I want. I've been justified by faith alone. Drunkenness isn't a big deal. I've been justified by faith alone. I don't need to go evangelize. I've been justified by faith alone. I don't need to serve in the local church or give to the local church. I'm, I'm one in Christ. We're good. And you could fall off the horse on either side of the ditch per se. It's like there was a man who had a huge debt and he's working two and three jobs to try and pay back his debt. And he's got a friend who comes along and says, man, like I want you to actually be able to spend some time with your family and not be working 17 hours a day. So, so the friend, the benefactor comes along and he impoverishes himself to pay off the other guy's debt so that He's not bound by it. And this guy can make two errors. One, he can keep working two and three jobs and writing checks and making Venmo deposits to try and get himself out of debt. It's like, no, bozo, you're being a legalist. You're already out of debt. You don't have to earn it. Or he can get out of debt and come home and say, let me go buy the newest PlayStation and spend 16 hours a day playing PlayStation games 
And the guy's saying, no, bozo, I didn't free you to waste your life on video games. I freed you so that you could love and serve your family and those in your church and your community around you. Don't be a legalist or an antinomian. Verse 18, let's keep going here. Paul continues, he says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So you read that and you think, man, I didn't think we were building or tearing anything down. What's this all about? Ephesians 2, Paul would say, what this wall that existed was a wall of hostility. God's on one side, we're on the other. He is holy, we are not. And that Jesus saves, that he justifies us by his righteousness, not by our own. It tears down the wall of hostility so that we can be good with God. So Paul's saying that wall of hostility was torn down, and if I try to rebuild that wall, then I prove myself to be a transgressor because I show that I don't measure up to the standard. I can't be good enough. So if I go back to trying trying to earn my way, all it proves is that I'm not good enough in the first place. I prove myself to be a transgressor. transgressor. In fact, just this morning, one of our uh, sent missionaries texted me a story of a guy in India who he'd given a Bible to. And the guy said, I read the Bible at first because I wanted to find fault with it. But as I read the Bible, the Bible found fault with me. That's what happens. I think I'm going to find fault with somebody else's system. And when I read the Bible by the Spirit of God, I find out, oh, I'm the transgressor. I need Jesus. He's holy. I'm not. Verse 19, we keep going. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. All right, kind of a tongue twister there. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Here's what Paul says. Through the law, I died to the law. I tried to obey to achieve justification. And the harder I worked to obey to achieve it, the more I realized I couldn't do that, so I died to that whole system. I no longer obey to earn my justification. No, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So now I obey out of my justification. I've been made one with Christ. He's made me holy, and now I obey out of the freedom he's given me. Huge difference there. And what happens in most of our earthly relationships is they're transactional in one way or another. You do this, and if you do this, then you deserve that. I hit a sales number, I earn a certain bonus. I produce a certain amount of goods, I earn a certain, I'm, I, I, someone deserves to give me a certain amount of revenue. If I'm a teacher, my students score at a certain level on a standardized test, and if they achieve in that way, then I deserve this reward. It's transactional relationships. That's how most of our relationships work. But the problem is, in transactional relationships with God, we always end up bankrupt. One way of saying this is to say the treadmill of God's holiness always runs faster than the feet of your sinfulness. You just can't keep up. I remember being in high school uh, and I was uh, wanting to get faster and more athletic. So I went to this, this training facility on the north side and they had these super fancy treadmills that went up to a, like a 40% incline at 30 miles an hour. So you had like three groups of people that went to this place. One, you had real athletes, guys like played for the Colts. And then you had like pseudo athletes like me that wanted to be an athlete. And then you had little dudes that had no business being there. Their parents just had too much money and didn't know what to do with it. And so I remember one day being next to one of those dudes and he is, um, he's running on the, 
on the treadmill a bit like a gazelle runs and jumps, and he's saying and joking, I'm bounding, I'm bounding. And you're like, dude, you are an idiot. And the trainer, of course, is right there of like, I need your dad's money. You're being stupid. How do I handle this? Like, like, man, don't do that. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. Well, ultimately what happens is the guy trips, he falls. There's the, kind of the pole right next to the, the treadmill and he grabs onto it as the treadmill's running and I'm running next to him and I look over and there's just this smell of burning flesh coming up. The fabric of the treadmill is just being burned into his arm as he holds on, holds on, holds on. And finally he lets go and the treadmill throws him off. And it's like, dude, this is not a good idea. You can't keep up if you try and do it your way. That's what it is for us. We can't keep up if we try to do it our way. The treadmill of God's holiness always runs faster than the feet of our sinfulness. That's what we've been saying the whole morning so far. God is holy, I am not. I need Jesus to save so that Christ will be my life. Maybe, maybe a chart is helpful in seeing how this teases itself out. Paul would say, in my former life, I tried, but I didn't keep the law. In my new life, Christ did keep the law. In my former life, I sought God's favor through my obedience, although I didn't have it. In my new life, I now possess God's favor through Christ's obedience. In my former life, I obeyed to get something from God. In my new life, I obeyed to please God. In my former life, I prayed to get stuff from God. In my new life, I prayed to get more of God. In my former life, I lived to show how good I am. In my new life, I lived to show how great God is. In, in my former life, was frantic scorekeeping, trying to prove that I measured up and I've been good enough and I've kept enough rules and God's gonna be happy with me. And in my new life, I rest in the victory that Christ has already achieved, his perfect life. We say this over and over and over here that the Bible is all about God and what he's done for you, not about you and what you need to do for him. That's the message of Galatians 2. So Paul says, remember the gospel, and then he clarifies the gospel, and lastly, he's going to say, live in the gospel. Live in the gospel. Verse 20, look back at your copy of the scriptures we we'll read again, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does it mean to live in the gospel? First off, Paul says it means you've been crucified with Christ. You've died to yourself. You've died to your old way of life. I couldn't help but read this and think of J.P. Heldman, one of our members here. Perhaps you know his story or heard his testimony video. If you don't, J.P. was super sick during the pandemic, on the verge of death. We didn't know if he would make it or not. He went into a coma before the election, didn't come out of it until well into the new year. It was terrifying. We're all praying, coming alongside the Heldmans. And afterwards, after God healed JP, he came back and he said, I realized I had to die to myself. There were things I cared about way too intensely, things I thought mattered the most. And, and he said, I, I found myself previously obsessed with, with podcasts and with politics and with my investment portfolio. And, and I realized 
Those aren't bad things, but I gotta die to those things because what really matters is knowing Jesus and making him known. To live in the gospel is to be crucified with Christ. And the things that I used to give everything for, I now recognize are not ultimate because there's something else that's better for me to give my life to. It's important to clarify, being crucified with Christ doesn't mean that you become super passive and just a robot Christian, Christian, living robot Christianity, and you don't have to do anything. The incorrect way would be to say, Christ, not you. Christ does it, you do nothing. No, that's, that's false. That's like the whole antinomian thing. I don't have to do anything. No, the, the better way is to say, Christ in you. Christ works in you to produce the life that he wants. And, and maybe a helpful way of thinking about this is, you know, it's super hot out right now, so let's think back to the winter and imagine we got two feet of snow today. And it's, it's the powdery, dusty, lightweight stuff. And uh, teens, you, you can relate to this. Imagine your dad says, hey, I want you to shovel the driveway. It's a snow day today, two feet. Here you go, I'm gonna give you a, a brand new shovel to do this with. Here's a Lego shovel. And you look at him like, dad, are you serious? Like, yep, here it is, get to work. By the end of the day, you can get the job done. He's like, this is a joke. I can't shovel two feet of snow with a Lego shovel. Yeah, you can't earn your way to God. Christ in you is more like the snowplow way. Hey, here's this great snowplow. And Christ's death and empowering spirit in you is the engine of the plow that fires up and takes you where to go. And the law is good and holy and right. It's like the GPS on the snowplow. It directs you where to go while the power of Christ in you is the engine to take you there and you are active in the whole process driving to get there but the power is yours and the direction is not yours. You need the power of Christ with the GPS of the law and you gotta be actively involved and here's how I live out the Christian life. That's why John Bunyan, hundreds of years ago, would famously say, check this on the screen, to run and work the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Yeah, the law tells you what to do, but it gives you no power to do it. The gospel is way better because it tells you where to go and how to get there, and it gives you the power to do it. You say, Justin, this, this sounds good theoretically, but it kind of feels like pastor talk. Like, what does this actually mean on the ground, day-to-day, real-life how does the, the rubber meet the road? How does the gospel give me wings to fly? What does that actually mean? Well, let's talk about that. Day to day, in your life, you got inner voices in your head telling me, I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. Claim, Christ is my life. He's good enough. He's better. Day to day, week to week, you, you hear us talking about being on mission and you're beating yourself up. I've lived by these neighbors for years. I've never proclaimed Christ to them. I must be a failure as a Christian. Christ is my life. His righteousness is better than your righteousness. Plead his case, not your own. You get on Instagram, you see the influencers and all the, the money and the power and the sex and the beauty they have. You say, I wish I had that. That's what I want to live my life for. I know I shouldn't, but I want it. You tell yourself, Christ is my life. What he has is what is better than what they've had. 
and I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live to those things. And I can't stop living to those things on my own. I need his power in me to guide me into a better way. So Justin, I'm so stressed at work. I, I can't sleep at night. I wake up at 2.30 in the morning with a cold sweat and a nervous twitch. It's terrible. I, I feel so paralyzed. I, I don't know what to do. Friend, Christ is your life. Cling to him. You see, my, my kids have walked away. They're not in the faith anymore. And I feel guilty for not being a good enough parent. Christ is your life. His righteousness is better than your righteousness. He's the heavenly father that you never could be. And praise God, it depends on his grace, not on your skills. He's like, Justin, I, 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 I'm single. I just wish that guy or that girl would give me the, the time of day. Just, just respond to the text message for crying out loud. I see the little bubbles pop up and then it's gone. Like, this is cruel. Friend, Christ is your life. He's better than any relationship on this earth you could ever have. And you need the engine of the gospel in your heart to free you from bondage to needing that relationship. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. We keep going to verse 21, and Paul makes a startling, an absolutely <laughs> startling statement. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I hope that startles you as much as it startles me. Paul says, I could nullify the grace of God, but I'm not going to. That's scary. You mean I could nullify the grace of God? I don't want to do that. I hope you don't want to do that. How would I nullify the grace of God? You might nullify the grace of God in your life if after you screw up, you feel a need to feel bad enough for long enough before you can go back to God. You're believing in justification by remorse, as if Christ's suffering wasn't enough and you need to suffer a little more for it to be okay. You might be nullifying the grace of God if you feel unable to approach God after sinning until you've had a period of good days in a row. You're believing justification by self-discipline as if Christ's righteousness wasn't enough and you need to sprinkle a little bit of your own righteousness in there for things to be okay. You might be nullifying the grace of God if you suspect that as you sin and sin that God's grace and his mercy and his love is like, uh, it's like a reservoir that's, a, that's about to run out. Like, I don't know if he's got enough grace left for me. Here's the crazy thing. Romans 6 would say that when you sin, his grace abounds even more. It's like the reservoir of his grace. When you sin, it somehow, although being infinitely large, actually gets drilled down a little bit deeper. So there's more grace coming out, not grace that's about to get used up. Wow. I can't even wrap my mind around that. This is how we might nullify the grace of God. If, if you feel subtly superior to other Christians because you serve so much more than them. Justification by service. You might nullify the grace of God if, if you think you deserve heaven just slightly more than the Taliban. It's justification by your own morality. You might think, you might think that your giving 
to God's kingdom ensures just a little bit, it just kind of locks down a little bit God's favor on you and your family. That's how you nullify the grace of God, by believing in justification by giving. Guys, what we, we have to believe, and it is so hard to believe, is that God's love exists to swallow us up at our worst, not to pat us on our back for our best. And so often, it's easy for us to see when we're doing well, we feel God's love. God's love pats me on my back for my best. It's not there to swallow me up on my worst moment, but it is. That's what it means to live in the gospel. There's one little phrase in verse 20 that I skipped over and I want to come back to and I want to conclude here. At the end of verse 20, look back at your copy of the scriptures. I'll read the last sentence of verse 20. Paul says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you realize that's the only place in Paul's letters that he says, Christ loved me and gave himself for me? All over the place he says, he loved us, he died for us, but he personalizes it here. So you don't really move past the kid's tune, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, you feel weak? He's strong. What that means is that as Paul is explaining these vast, immense theological truths of the gospel and what justification by faith alone means, as he begins to explain it, it's like he enters into a moment of worship. He says, Christ died for me of all people. He loved me. And, and you might hear that thing like, Justin, yes, he died for Paul, but you don't know the things I was thinking last night. You don't know what I said this morning or the things I did this week. And if you did, you wouldn't be so sure that God's love exists to swallow me up at my worst. If you knew that, you'd be a little more cautious in your language. Well, you're right about one thing. I don't know what you thought or did or said, but you are wrong on the other part because God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. And Paul is here saying, I was the first century Taliban. And Jesus saw me in that moment. And he loved me. And he gave himself for me. And so I don't care who you are or what you've done or even what you're thinking right now. He loves you. He gave himself for you. The freaked out, stressed out, burned out version of you, he loved you. The anxiety, riddled, paralyzed by it. I can't do anything. He sees you. He loves you. He gave himself for you. The looked at porn last night version of you. Yeah, he sees you and loves you and gave himself for you. The angry other brothers and sisters in Christ and refusing to forgive them version of you. Yeah, he saw that anger you and loved you and gave himself for you. The frustrated with your job version of you, questioning, is God actually good and still with me? Has he just kind of cast me out to this isolation island? You doubt his goodness? Is he mad at me for doubting his goodness? No, he loved you in that moment of doubting and gave himself for you in that moment. 
the flew off the handle, yelled at somebody you shouldn't have yelled at with words you shouldn't have used and thoughts that were 10 times worse that you should never have thought. Yeah, that version of you. He loved you and gave himself for you in that moment. So in a moment here, we're, we're gonna go to communion and I want you to remember that Jesus. I want you to keep your Bibles open because it might be good for you to read Galatians 2, 15 to 21 while you do that. If you're not a Christian, this is a great time to say, Justin, this justification by faith alone and Christ alone thing, it makes sense and I've never for the first time put my faith and trust in Jesus. And it's really simple. You just cry out to him and say, look, I understand, God, that you are holy and that I am not and Jesus, I need you to save me and Christ will be my life. It's really simple. Communion's not for you. You just talk to God. But if you are a Christian, you need to remember the exact same thing, that God's holy and you're not, that Jesus saves, and Christ is now your life. We're gonna sing a song after communion. We'll give a few minutes of quiet, and it is my favorite hymn in the world. It's so critical for us in this. It's before the throne of God above, and that, that second verse I could sing, I think, forever. Well, I can't really sing, but I could appreciate the words. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, when I start to feel like I don't measure up, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have come to earth, lived the perfect life that we could never live, gone to the cross, died the death that we should have died to free us from ourselves, to free us from sin, from hell, from Satan, and from death. Help us not to be gospel amnesiacs forgetting who you are and what you've done and the power you've given to live your life. Oh, Jesus, we need you. Help us not to be tempted to despair by Satan, but to look up and to see you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.